0: So being a couple of weeks post-Easter, it's probably fairly natural. I'm, I'm not one that, you know, avidly follows Christian traditional calendars of dates and things like that, but we absolutely do celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus, and we absolutely do actually celebrate Pentecost and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, God's beautiful gift to us through Jesus. But we're in an in-between time. We haven't reached Pentecost yet. Pentecost happens 50 days after Passover. And so we're in an in-between phase in that sort of calendar period. And, of course, the day of Pentecost, at which the Holy Spirit was poured out, happened once 2,000 years ago. And yet, you know, as part of how we remember and pay attention to these things and remind ourselves we're halfway between. And it kind of stirred up, some thoughts and feelings for me about what it was like for the disciples in that intervening period and and in some ways my that stirring that I had was a little bit touched on and, and perhaps amplified of where I want to go with this by um, the first message at our conference, which was given by our old uh, senior pastor our previous senior pastor Ian miller i shouldn 't say old because he 'll get offended by me calling him old, but he used to be our senior pastor in Hornsby, and many of you people have met Ian and had the opportunity to get to know him and his wife Christine a little bit, Um, and he was just visiting back from the United States, uh, Tennessee, God's called them there for a number of years, they're in their fourth year, Uh, living in the Appalachian Mountains, around all the interesting... um, snake handling cults and things like that. So, yeah, some very interesting stories about the stuff that God's doing over there. But anyway, here's the thing that was really, I suppose, kind of percolating for me about that intervening time period after Jesus had been resurrected, uh, hadn't yet ascended to heaven, And the Holy Spirit had not yet been poured out on all flesh. See, because we tend to kind of think that Jesus was just there in that time. Only, when you actually read the accounts, it seems to me like he was perhaps more not there than there. Um, and, And it's this weird thing where I reckon the disciples were probably, after that first... Resurrection Sunday, um, wondering when are we going to see him next? When will it happen? you know every day they 'd be waking up. will we see him today and that would be like a pretty weird headspace to kind of live in wouldn't it? but you know if you look at if you look at the accounts and they 're all different every each one of the four gospel accounts, and, and even then the first chapter of the book of Acts, they all give a, a different perspective and different memories of, you know, or significance on different events that the authors give them. Matthew, for instance, um, on Resurrection Sunday, Jesus doesn't even talk to the main bulk of the disciples. He talks to the women and tells them to tell the others, the blokes, go to Galilee and I'll meet them there. You know, so we have this very shortcut version of that 40-day time period in which we go from the day of resurrection, pretty much leapfrog to Jesus on a high mountain giving his final words. It's very interesting. And yet, um, you know, and in that, Matthew doesn't actually talk about Jesus' ascension at all. doesn't give that. In fact, the very final closing words of his gospel are, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, we have to read Matthew's point, what he's trying to tell us. Christ is with us. He hasn't abandoned his people and gone back to heaven, closed the door and said, I'll see you later. His point is, I'll be with you. And that is a theme of Matthew that we actually read throughout the body of it. Because you have like in one point, Matthew 18, Jesus tells them, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst. Now, if Jesus was remaining on the earth as a single human being being in a finite human body, I mean, that's not possible, right? Right? He can't be everywhere at once. So every possible gathering of believers meeting in his name, he can't be there in a physical sense. So we have to understand Matthew has a, a theological point. He wants us to know something about the risen Lord Jesus when he when he makes that that view, when he paints that picture for us of Jesus saying, "I am with you always," but it's not the whole picture. I mean, Mark is, is very sort of thin in what he says. Mark just says afterwards, as in after the women meet the angel and, um, and they have this initial encounter, so they have the, the day of Christ's resurrection, and then it just says afterwards, two of them met Jesus in the country. It's kind of an echo of what Luke writes in a bit more detail. And then later... When the disciples are all together, he only gives like three occurrences of Jesus actually meeting with people. Luke is the, is the one that writes in more detail about these two disciples who were walking to this town outside of Jerusalem and having a, an encounter with Jesus on, on that resurrection Sunday in the evening. So we get all these snippets of different pictures of Jesus encountering people. And then there's that same night with the disciples. Those two rush back to Jerusalem to tell their story. And while they're there, Jesus comes in the room. But the next thing we know from that, again, it's this fast forward 40 days to Jesus' actually ascension. So Luke's the one that spells out that event uh, in two two places in, in, in the gospel. And then he reiterates it at the start of the book of Acts. John, I love John. I'm so thankful for John. I feel like, you know, scholars um, have, in in all their working out, who and when and how things were written, and it's very sketchy in the mists of time. But they do they do generally agree that John would have written this account later on. So he's had the benefit of seeing what others have written and thinking, well, I think there's more to be said. I think there's other emphasis to bring out and I love John for that because he gives us some some of the most profound things but he he kind of bridges the two for us which I appreciate but in John's gospel we've got the first day of resurrection Sunday then we've got a whole week a whole week before they have they're together again in the same place and this time Thomas is with them we You know, we probably all remember that story of, you know, because Thomas wasn't there on Resurrection Sunday. No explanation of where he was. He just wasn't in the room. And so he missed out and he's like, well, I don't really believe it. That's just the whole thing is too far-fetched. So fast forward a whole week. So the disciples have been waiting seven days. Perhaps we'll see Jesus again today. Perhaps. Imagine waking up every day with that expectation. Maybe we'll see Jesus today. But it's a whole week goes by before he appears again. And this time Thomas is with them. And and we have this beautiful interaction where Jesus says, look, if you really want to put your hand in my side, there you go. If you want to check out the scars, there they are. And Thomas is like, (laughs) I don't need to. It's okay. It's okay. And Jesus blesses him. And you know what? In doing so, he blesses us. Blessed are, you've seen, you believe because you've seen. You've actually checked out the scars and you believe, and that's good. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. You know, Jesus is speaking that blessing over us because we weren't there. But, but I feel like it's a really important thing that Jesus is saying. Uh, at the same time, John really, um, although he doesn't, it's not linear in how he includes, you know, it doesn't kind of get to the end of the story and then Jesus goes back up to heaven. It's, it's woven through. So, you know, John 14, we have Jesus saying, I've got to return to the Father. So he's describing what's coming. Um, he tells them, that because he's going to the Father, he's going to send another just like himself, one he calls the paraclete or the advocate, the counsellor, depending on which way you bring that Greek term into English. There's not, no direct translation, so there's different words in different translations of the Scripture. but But it has this bridging because Jesus is also there saying in John 14... I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And so we have to hear John actually saying, yes, Jesus is going, but he's also not going to leave us. Yes, he's returning to the Father, but he's also sending another just like himself. And he goes this far, it's John sixteen 7. I'll put this on the screen. Very truly I tell you, there's an emphasis there, Jesus uses the same word twice, this is true, this is true, I tell you, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him. Sometimes I think as Christians, as believers, we can operate a bit like we're in that in between time, wondering if we're going to have an encounter with God today. I don't know about you, but sometimes I've kind of had that thing of like this desire wouldn't it be good? You know, I remember many years ago hearing um, the testimony, the story of a man named Arthur Blessett who was. Led by God to just go and pray by this lake, Lake Tahoe in, in, in the States. And he was there with another person from the church. They would both felt led to go and pray in this place, at this lake. And they had a waking vision. The two of them together, wide awake, seeing the exact same thing. Checking with each other. Are you seeing this? And they had a waking vision of Jesus. An encounter as he came to them across the lake and spoke to them. Now, I don't know about you, I love to hear that story. But it kind of messes me up too. Because I, then I'm like, oh, I need to have that kind of God encounter. I need to have some experience that will elevate my spiritual life into a new plane. Or I actually don't know that scripture backs that. It's beautiful when God does it. He does it for a reason. You know, if I... The fact that I'm hearing that testimony says God has put that man on a platform for His purpose, um, and I'm sure He has also. Well, if you know anything about Arthur Blessed, He's literally carried His cross. You know, God set him on a path. There's a reason in what God does, but it's it's not the example which Scripture leads us to aspire to or to seek. In actual fact, it's quite different. So I just want to have a a look again at Acts chapter 1, just the very first part of of the book of Acts. And I want us to, to think about how we might have thought in this realm of wanting to encounter God, wanting for God to do something amazing so that I could believe better or somehow have a more deep experience of God, because I actually believe God has already given us everything that we need to have the very deepest of encounters with who he is. So Acts chapter 1 starts off like this. In my former book, Theophilus, You now, I just want to pause there and where where's my cup of tea? Gonna have a sit. Mouth feeling dry, sorry. I just find, I find it fascinating. You may have heard this expressed before, but the fact that, that Luke, who's who is um commonly known as the author of the book of Acts, even though he doesn't claim authorship, it's like all the ancient. Um, people who talk about the book of Acts testify, it was Luke, that everything that we've written, everything that he'd written about Jesus to that point was the beginning. So the whole gospel of Luke, and in saying that, all the other gospels, are actually what he wrote about what Jesus began to do and to teach. Now, that should tell us something. It actually strongly, strongly implies that this second volume of his writing is what Jesus continued to do, even though, as we will find out, Jesus himself is only present for just a short period at the start. And the interesting thing in saying all that Jesus began to do and to teach, straight away, who is it that he gives agency to in the doing and the teaching? The Holy Spirit. So Jesus is actually giving instructions to his disciples about what is to come and about the kingdom of God and, and how to go forward in the mission that he's putting before them through the Holy Spirit. It continues on in verse 4. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord... Are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Um, If you've been around Pentecostal charismatic churches for any length of time. You'll have heard this passage numerous times. But I just felt to revisit this again. Because in a way, they were doing, you know, what all of us tend to do is like expecting or or hoping for God to do something uh, amazing and miraculous and, and Jesus is actually giving them the answer of what that looks like. But the point that he makes for them is that they need to wait. Wait for God. Expect for God. And it's right for us to expect it. But again, as we read through, what we see is they've got ideas that are not exactly what God has in mind you know, while they're thinking about Israel and, and the kingdom and, and their view of what Messiah is all about, Jesus says, "That's look, leave that to the Father. You're going to be my witnesses, not just in Jerusalem and Judea, but also in Samaria, those people that up until now have been considered outcasts from Judaism, but also right out to the ends of the earth. I have a bigger vision but you've got to wait, you've got to wait for the Holy Spirit. And I've just been so stirred that we are called to be, God intends and wants for us to be a people filled, baptised with Holy Spirit. It's, and it's so easy for us to just sort of slide back into this thing of hoping for some kind of encounter with Jesus... And he's like, I've already given you my Holy Spirit. What are you doing? And the last bit of this passage just finishes off. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? That's, that's the point at which I think sometimes, even though we know all this, we still find ourselves kind of standing, gazing, waiting for this Jesus encounter, hoping that somehow we'll be granted something that will elevate our spirituality, give us you know, some special dose of faith or whatever, And here are the angels saying, okay, you can stop looking there because that's not what God is planning for you now. They give an affirmation. The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. So we must affirm that. Just like the angel said, don't worry, I get why you're looking, but you won't be seeing Jesus until he returns in glory. So there's a promise and it's a wonderful promise and we need to hang on to it and hold on to it and expect that Jesus is returning. But in the meantime, he said, wait, wait for the promised Holy Spirit, wait for the power. And I actually think this is the lesson for us that we need to weave into because Jesus is... He's actually promised us the capacity for a daily encounter with His presence every single day. You know, as I was thinking about today, my compulsion was like, I, I've, for a start, I just felt like it was too big of a topic, and I didn't know where to start. But do you know what my heart just wanted to do? Is just pray, <laughs> just go to Him, and just begin to let the spirit overflow, use my prayer language and just let the spirit move because that's what it's all about. Not, and and I'm not, I don't mean just limit it to praying in tongues and it sort of gets my hackles up a bit where people equate being baptized in Holy Spirit with speaking in tongues. I think that's like equating a steering wheel with a car. Do you know what I mean? Yes, it is, but it's certainly not the whole vehicle. <laughs> There's more. <laughs> There's more. And I, and I think it's a mistake for us to be like, you know, in this posture of standing, looking at heaven, looking to the heavens, waiting for Jesus. When it's like, yeah, but the Holy Spirit is here right now, with power, with a mission with the continuing work of what Jesus began to do and to teach to carry the message of the kingdom of God throughout all the nations of the earth. So we can't afford to just stand here gazing at heaven waiting. He's got more. And the more I thought about, you know, all the New Testament authors, the way they write about all of this, They all have this clear understanding. Jesus is actually in heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. There's a handful of times where Jesus is mentioned in the visible sense. And what are they? That's Stephen, when he's being stoned to death, what is he doing? He looks up to heaven and he has the vision of Jesus standing at the right hand of God. So it's not that Jesus appears next to him. Now, I've heard beautiful stories stories of where Jesus has turned up for people. But it's all in that mix of how God just He's God. You know, the way the way C. S. Lewis puts it, he's not a tame lion, you know, talking about Aslan, who is this beautiful Christ figure. But they all agree Jesus has ascended to the throne we are waiting for his return all of them when paul encounters jesus what is it i mean it's only described as a flashing light but it's it's the same thing it's like this vision of heaven which he's not ready for to the degree where it blinds him and he needs miraculous healing a few days later paul has amazing visions But he doesn't even know if it's in the body or an out-of-body experience. He can't explain it. But again, it's in heaven. So I don't want us to miss what God has said and what Jesus has said to us about his presence here and now. I have felt stirred and dissatisfied You know, I think we have to be honest with ourselves if we are actually not pursuing God. And the difference is, what are we pursuing? I think. If we're pursuing in line with what He has said, i.e., be filled with the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit has been poured out, that His presence, the presence of Christ, is with us through the Holy Spirit. We have a mission. I mean, there's a lot to unpack in this. We could go right down the veins of Trinitarian theology and all kinds of ways. I'm I'm feeling like maybe I should just pause right now. Because we do actually... Want to know Christ? No, you may ask a question. That's for all of us. Love and obedience go hand in hand when it comes to God, and I don't think we should get bent up over words like obedience because the truth is, if we truly honour who God is, we would never question whether or not obedience is appropriate. <laughs> if there is anyone to whom obedience is due, it is the Lord. And so I don't want to ever hair split over you know if we if obedience comes first and then God loves us i think that's a wrong interpretation i think there's a future imperative there are two different again there's you could do a deep study on the text and various fragments one of which makes it an imperative in other words jesus giving a command to do And the other, which makes it into a result. The result of love is obedience. But but we want a God encounter and we want transformation. I mean, let's face it, to obey God is to be transformed into his likeness, to begin to live like him, for his holiness to actually be in our lives. You know, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Now, the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom or liberty. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. It's not surprising we kind of interpret that as gazing upon Christ because that's where Paul goes with the passage. The next chapter, verse 6, he says, For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory. It's a long sentence, but stay with me. Displayed in the face of Christ. The knowledge of God's glory is displayed in the face of Jesus. But how do we contemplate his glory? How do we contemplate the face of Jesus? By the Spirit. By the Spirit. It's the Spirit who actually quickens his word, who gives life to the scriptures as we read about Jesus as we begin to discover who he is, it's the Holy Spirit that actually makes that come alive so that we encounter the person. We encounter the person of Jesus because the Holy Spirit is just like him. The mission, the ministry, the power, the things that he did, the things that he said are all true of the Holy Spirit. So how important is it for us to know the Holy Spirit and allow him to do just that, to give us the light of the knowledge of his glory, to be transformed into his likeness in ever-increasing glory. It's through the Holy Spirit. And we must, we are compelled, I'm compelled, to be a person who is continually open to the Spirit's work in my life and to his work in our midst. We are both individually temples of the Holy Spirit. Paul Paul renews out the whole picture of the temple because you know a temple is where a deity lives. If you go to India, you visit a temple, they've got a statue. That's the deity. It's an expression of whatever God it might be. Judaism, it was considered... Where the presence of God resided in the Holy of Holies. And Paul turns that on its head and says, guess what? Now that same God lives in you. And then he says it corporately. He dwells among you as a people. And so it must be expressed individually and corporately. So I'd, just, I'd love it if the guys come up. and, I just wanted to spend some time, as we, as we wrap up today, I wanted to spend some time actually allowing God to speak and to move, allowing room for the Holy Spirit to give voice to what he wants to do and to say and just to fill us again. Because even as we gather together and as his people, having God dwelling in our midst is not about a Sunday gathering. It's about the expression of Jesus' body, Jesus' hands and feet, his voice, what he wants to say, what he wants to do, where he wants to go every day of the week. It's one of the things that was being stirred up this week. The conference title was Unreached. But we will never do that without the Spirit's continual infilling of us, without His power. Can't do it in our own strength. I can't change another person's life. But I can be there as God's agent to speak His words and be His hands and feet. And see him move, see what only he can do happen because he's present. Amen. Thank you, Lord. God, we do want to... My prayer is that we would learn this lesson that we have continual access to your presence. We don't have to stand gazing into heaven waiting for a vision. We have you right here. You are our paraclete, our one who clings to us by our side, who cleaves to us, our advocate, our support, our counsellor. We have the mind, the heart of God in you. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here who is uncertain of your empowering in their life, of your presence in their life, God, that you would just give them that certainty. Lord, that you would pour your spirit on them right now. We know you have poured out your spirit in that you've made yourself available, but Lord, I pray that that point of believing and receiving would be true for each and every one of us. Thank you for your precious gift of your Holy Spirit. Amen. We're just going to wait on God now and just invite Him to speak to you.